0: Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Job and to chapter 2. I'm just going to read verses 11 to 13, but while you're finding it, let me remind you what's happened. Job, the man who was blameless and upright and feared God and shunned evil and dreadful calamities had come upon him. His sons, his daughters had been killed, Uh, all his flocks and herds, his wealth had gone. And then... (coughs) He had been stricken down with this dreadful disease and he was covered in boils from head uh, to foot. And we are taken behind the scenes, aren't we, to know that this is God giving Satan permission to do this for God's own purposes and Job, of course, did not know what was going on. That's, That's what's happening, isn't it, here. And it's all for our benefit so that the many questions and right and wrong questions and answers that are given in the whole book uh, we don't have to wrestle with, we've given them uh, so that we can answer these big questions about why do bad things happen to good people and other questions. Job, just want to read this little bit, Job 2 verse 11 Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him Each one came from his own place: Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they had raised their eyes from afar, when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his grief was very great. I'm not usually a great fan of revisionist historians who want to go back and through history and try to prove that the people who were clearly the goodies were the baddies and the people who were the baddies were the goodies, which is, seems to be what often you have to do to get your PhD in the subject. But... I am going to be a revisionist here. I want to say good things about Job's friends. Uh, plenty of bad things are said about them. Job's comforters has become a, a proverbial phrase. And rightly, uh, because God says at the end to Eliphaz, you have not at the end of the book, he says uh, to him, last, last chapter, verse 7, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job had. But the point I want to start off with is that Job's friends were there. And there were an awful lot of people who weren't there. We're going to meet some of them in a little while. And I want to just try to draw out tonight what something that we can learn, I think, from these men about true friendship. Yes, they got it wrong in the end. Job begins to lament that he was ever born. And they immediately come in with theological and philosophical answers saying, you mustn't say things like that, Job. And they end up accusing Job, you must be a great sinner because bad things are happening to you. So we're not saying they got it all right, they didn't. But here, in this, in these just three verses, uh, we have a very different picture, I think, don't we, of them. So Job 2 and verse 11. uh, And most of what I'm going to say is actually from verse 11, so don't worry if it's going on a long time they came to him, these three friends, they heard of all the adversity that had come upon him and each one came from his own place. Now we, it's uncertain exactly where some of these lands uh, were but Job was in the land of Oz, and there's a Temanite and a Shuhite and a Naamathite, and these were people who lived in different areas. Some of them perhaps were quite a distance from Job. Friends from different nations. How had Job ever met them? Perhaps He met them on business in various ways. Uh, Perhaps they were travellers who'd stayed at his house and people would give hospitality, obviously, to others uh, who were on the road. And these were men who had... must be like this. We're not speculating here. They must have built up a relationship with Job before this which was deep and profound. And a relationship, I would suggest that is based on a common desire, because of the sort of discussions they have here, probably a common desire to think about the big issues. They all believe that God is real. They say lots of true things about God, as well as false ones. They talk about the greatness of his being. These would be the sort of men, I imagine, that when Job had found them on his doorstep suddenly, on on a journey, he would have said, oh, it's good, it's you again, we can have a good chinwag tonight. And talk about the Lord. And that must be because of the sort of way they were able to speak with him. We mustn't assume he didn't have other friends. But we know something about some other friends of Job's. Because in Job 19 and verse 13 he says, He has removed, the Lord has removed my brothers far from me. And my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed and my close friends have forgotten me. And he's saying that that to close friends. So these are the cream; These are the ones who haven't run a mile when they've heard what has happened to Job. These are godly, spiritual people with an affinity to Job. Many consider Job a great sinner, accursed by God. In chapter 30, uh, he speaks of this, uh, where he says in verses 9 to 11, And now I am their taunting song, Yes, I am their byword. They abhor me. They keep far from me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. That's how most people were treating Job, not these three men. They were friends. They heard of his grief. And um, think of the time scale here. They had to hear of his grief. They had to hear what's happened to him And then they had to send messengers back and forth to plan, when are we going to go and see Job? And then they had to travel. You're talking, I would have thought, at least several weeks. It may have been much longer, we don't know. But hearing of his grief, they did not shun him. Instead, they travelled long distances, doubtless at personal inconvenience. They're away from their families, their businesses, whatever they're doing. And indeed, they would have been criticised, wouldn't they? You're going to visit Job? No, Job. Look at what's happened to Job. He must be terrible. Don't go near Job. Uh, Job must be under the curse of God. If you go near Job, it might fall on you. That is the way people would have spoken. That is the way people might speak today. If you have someone, not Christians, I hope, would say that, but you can have someone who who has a great calamity, happens to them, and people will, will withdraw. And if you don't withdraw, they'll be thinking... Oh well, not sure you should be talking to them. And the superstition would be there sometimes, you know. It might rub off on us if we go too near. But they came to sympathise and to comfort, true, compassionate friends. I think we can learn at least five things from this first verse, I'm sure there's more, about the marks of true friendship. We see other marks, fewer of them, in the next two verses. The marks of true friendship, five of them, if you're taking notes, you should note five. The first is that it's inward. It's a fellowship of kindred minds and kindred souls. It's not based on race, is it? These men came from different racial backgrounds, different nations, tribes. It's not based on age. In chapter 15 and verse 10 we read that uh, Eliphaz is speaking and he says, the grey-haired and the aged are among us, he says to Job, much older than your father. So at least two of these men were an awful lot older than Job, more than a generation older. How old was Job? Well, he had ten children before they died in chapter one, unmarried children. Uh, how old was Job? Fifty. Maybe taking those two poles, men lived a long time. Maybe Eliphaz is 100. Job's father was 80, Job 50, his children 20. We're talking about that. If you see pictures of Job looking like a man who should have been in the grave long ago with a great long beard, you have to recalculate. It's a bit like with Isaac, isn't it? How old was Isaac when uh, Abraham was putting him on the altar? If you work it out, he was probably 40. (laughs) He wasn't a youth. Anyway, here's Job, and here's his friends, and the friends have a friendship which is, they're they're in different generations, they come from different places, but true friendship is inward, it transcends such distinctions, doesn't it? It is a, a genuine meeting of minds where these things just don't matter. Of course, most people end up with most of their friends in their own nation and age group, but it's not essential. Secondly, true friendship is enduring. It's not fickle. We see that here, don't we? These people. Job's calamities just brought them to him, didn't drive them away. True friendship is the sort of friendship that really endures. It's not dependent on circumstances. It's something which says, well, he's my friend. Full stop. She's my friend. And... Something bad has happened to my friend, I must be there, not I must run away. And also we can say, can't we, I think, leaving aside Job's calamity here, it's, it's the sort of friendship that's real after a long separation. We cannot imagine that these men met each other very often. But we can, I think, imagine, can't we, that, that these were the sort of people where as soon as you, they met again, they sort of picked up where they went up, left off you have uh, you have friends and they maybe ring you up, you haven't heard from them for years, and you find out who he is oh hi, and you're just back where you were. there's no stiffness in it, there certainly wasn't stiffness in this relationship. so true friendship is inward, it's enduring, it's genuine. it identifies it says, "I am with this man, he is my friend." Dreadful things has happened to him. I will leave everything else. I will go and help him. We might not have to be in that situation, but if if that situation comes, then this is what the true friend does and identifies with with your friend, even if others criticise you for doing it. And let, again, come out of a situation, the Job sort of situation. Uh, Into life where you have a friend and everybody else uh, will will be criticising you for befriending that person. But you do it because they're your friend. And you don't care what anyone else thinks about it. And then fourthly, true friendship here is expressed. It's not just in the mind and the heart. It's indeed, even at personal cost. Again, they are an illustration, aren't they? They put themselves out to help Joe when he needed it. And you might not have to travel a long way to do that, might you? But you will travel as far as you need. You will do what you can. There is a friend, isn't there? A friend is born for adversity. A friend sticks closer than the brother. Sorry, I'm misquoting the two halves of Proverbs 17, verse 17. Let me get it right. Uh, where it says, uh, "A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity." Well, these weren't brothers, but they were friends. Loves at all times—that's that's the mark, and it's expressed, it's seen. Job was not left in any doubt, was he, at the end or all the way through, that here were people who were on his side. They've got an awful lot of things wrong, uh, and they ended up with a big argument. But they were there for him. Their motives could not be questioned. And fifthly, we see that they were simply compassionate, don't they? We are told that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And it's always easier to do the first than the second, I think. But but here they were doing the second. Their friend was afflicted and they came in practical compassion to Job. So we get all that, I think, from verse 11, the fact they're there. Let's move on to verse 12. And when they raise their eyes from afar, so they haven't actually arrived yet, but they see Job, they're near enough to recognise that it must be him, but they haven't actually spoken, they haven't got to him. They did not recognise him, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head Toward heaven. So true friendship is emotional. Now, some of what they did here would be cultural ways of expressing mourning. Sprinkling dust on your head was what you did when you mourned someone because they had died, on the basis that when you die, it's dust to dust, that's where it comes from. Tearing the robe, very common in, in Eastern uh, places as, a, as a, a mark of mourning. And they were mourning Job, <laughs> but they were also probably mourning the fact his family they died. But the point is, it was it, true friendship here shows this shows, doesn't it? They were truly affected by the sufferings and indeed the joys of others. There is emotional capital in this relationship. It is not the sort of thing where they could have even begun to think of, of drawing away and, and shutting off the relationship. Their hearts were there with Job, even while they're on the way. And when they see his plight, they naturally express the grief they actually feel. So it's emotional. And then two things from verse 13, and then I'll be saying a bit more. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. So, two further marks of true friendship. It is sensitive. It adjusts the response to the situation. There is, as Solomon tells us in the Ecclesiastes, there is a time to be silent and there is a time to speak. True wisdom is, some part of true wisdom is, is knowing the difference. And it, you can get it wrong. You can speak when you should be quiet and you could be quiet when you should speak. The great temptation here must have been for, to say something. And I'm not sure that it was always a temptation. There, there perhaps came a point, I mean seven days is a, a, a traditional mourning period. So they're sitting with Job because not only is he covered with very painful boils, he, he has lost ten children. And they are mourning and this would be natural to sit quietly and mourn. Maybe it would have been better, though not for us because we wouldn't have the book of Job, if they had at the end spoken before Job got to the point where the first thing he does when he opens his mouth, chapter 3, verse 1, is cursing the day of his birth because that's what led to all the argy-bargy that went on afterwards from which we we can learn tremendous amounts of truth which God gives us through the book. But, certainly at the beginning, it was the right thing to do. In their situation and Job's situation, it would have been wholly wrong for them to come up, sit down by Job, open their mouths and say, Job, I'm so sorry. There are occasions when that might be what you should do. If you have a friend who who has sudden calamity or grief has come upon them, it might it depends on the relationship it depends on the circumstance entirely isn't it there's sometimes it is right as ecclesiastes says to speak and sometimes it's right to keep silent the point is they were sensitive to the situation they were trying to do the right thing job the right thing for job was their motive not what they wanted to do and the other thing we can say about true friendship here is it and it's really sums it all up doesn't it they was it was sincere they tried afterwards to say the right thing they all the way through what they are saying is what they believe to be true they failed to say the right thing they said what they believed and often it was wrong especially in the application. Of the truths about God. Not so much about the, 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 the ter- untruths about God. But it's what is God doing to you Job in this situation? Why are you suffering like this? That's what they got wrong. But they did say what they thought Job needed to hear. And sometimes again coming completely out of the Job situation. What your friend needs to And coming out of a grief situation. What your friend needs to hear is a rebuke or some sound advice, or whatever. And you don't say the same things, of course we don't, to the Satan people all the time. But we should be sincerely trying to help. That's what friendship does. Now, let's go on and just apply this for a few minutes. Because I have heard, and so perhaps of you, in different ways in churches, uh, people struggling with the whole concept of friendship in, in a church context uh, people you have someone here is mr mrs a and mr well, let's say Missa, mrs a mrs b and Miss, mrs c it could be mr uh, it doesn't matter and they they're, they're very close and they do everything together and, and and they obviously and they do help each other spiritually But looking on, people say, are they a clique? Uh, Or are they plotting something? (laughs) This sort of thing happens. And the problem is, because you cannot be on a deep level friends with more than a very few people. That is just a statement of fact about humanity. Nothing to do with Christianity. Someone who has 300 friends on Facebook will find that they have 300 people who cut them off at the slightest thing they say that they don't agree with. They're not friends at all. But coming to real friends, you can have close friends. You can have more friends than three or four, but really close friends. The ones you would open your hearts to. The ones who want to help you. The ones who just are concerned about you and not about themselves you will not have many. Meeting of minds like that. But where there is that, it's always good to have a few, might even only be one, close, deep friend who you can really say anything to and they can say anything back. And you are aware that the whole relationship, there is integrity there. Another thing to say then is this, obviously it's on the surface, isn't it? When friends suffer, be there if possible. And if you can't be there, yes, you ring them up or whatever it might be. But communicate. Uh, it's easy, isn't it, to say, "Oh, I don't know." In that situation, perhaps perhaps they don't want me to be bothered with them. Uh, and and we can understand why we, we they might say that they've got enough in their plate without me talking to them. I think it's much easier to err on the side of. Not speaking when we should than speaking when we shouldn't in those cases, to be honest. But you do have to be (laughs) sensitive to each case, don't we? But the point here, I think, is this. If you turn up to someone and you just don't know what to say, don't worry about what to say. Just be there. And listen. And if they say things that you think that's not really what they should be saying... Like, you know, why has God done this to me? Or has God cast me off? Or, 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 you know, how can I love God in this situation? Or something. Don't do a Job's friends and start coming in with a theological argument. Just listen. And in the end, you know, they, because Job later on in the book says, I said wrong things. I regret it. So don't say that their first word, take it as their last word. if it comes out of a heart of grief. pray for them. Here it is at the end of the book and I'll finish with this. Job 42 and verse 10. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Now Job was told by the Lord to pray enough for sacrifice for his friends. But it's an example isn't it? Pray for your friends. And indeed The person who is always, and they don't even have to tell you really, praying for you, is the person who is your friend. And we need to be friends. And we need to have friends. And we need to be friendly with those we can. And we all need our circle, however small it is, of those who we can just open up to. But you don't even have to say anything. Because you know they're 100% on your side. The Lord Jesus, of course, is the one who supremely says, doesn't he, I call you friend. And he is always the one who sticks closer than a brother.